This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash Counselor Toolbox. This episode of Counselor Toolbox has been sponsored in part by Foundations Events. As the behavioral health industry evolves, the need for collaboration is greater than ever. Join Foundations Events at the Innovations in Behavioral Healthcare Conference, June 20th and 21st in Nashville. Focused on listening to both the patient and provider, this conference offers two days of sessions that follow the journey from meeting the patient where they are to helping them find recovery. Special pricing for licensed clinicians is available with the opportunity to earn over 20 CEUs. Visit foundationsevents.com slash counselor toolbox for more information and to register today. Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Donnelly Snipes, and today we're going to be talking about caring for transsexual, transgender, and gender nonconforming people. This is based in part on the Standards of Care for Transsexual, Transgender, and Gender Nonconforming People, a publication by the World Professional Association for Transgender, Transgender Health. To find out more, you can Google that. You can see that. You also have a copy of it in your classroom. In this particular presentation, we're really going to hit the, the family, or we're really going to hit the highlights of what's going on with people. Um, and look at the difference between gender nonconformity and gender dysphoria, because there is a big difference. We'll talk about some epidemiological considerations. We'll explore the sources of stigma and discrimination and their impact on health. We'll go over the therapeutic approaches for gender dysphoria, because that's really what we're treating. We're not treating gender nonconformity. We're treating the dysphoria that may accompany gender, uh, gender nonconformity. And we'll explore some assessment and treatment issues in the treatment of children and adolescents with gender, gender dysphoria. There is a lot of, or there will be a lot of uh, statistics in some of the stuff that we're talking about. Again, when it comes to, you know, quizzes or what I really want you to get out of this, don't get hung up on numbers. Just get the, the overall idea um, when, when we talk about things like that. Anyhow. Both across and within nations, so not just the U.S., there are differences in all of the following. Social attitudes towards transsexual, transgender, and gender nonconforming people. Constructions of gender roles and identities. Languages used to describe different gender identities. The epidemiology of gender dysphoria. Access to and cost of treatment. The types of therapies that are offered. 
the number and type of professionals who provide care, and legal and policy issues related to this area of health care. This is within nations, so even within the United States, depending on where you're at, people who are gender nonconforming may feel more accepted and have more access to resources in one state or one area than in others. Social attitudes may be much more accepting in some states versus others. This is important to know. It's important to know your local area, to know what resources are out there and what the social attitudes and potential barriers are for people who are gender nonconforming. There are examples of certain cultures in which gender nonconforming behaviors are less stigmatized and even revered in spiritual leaders. So we do have this pretty big spectrum of complete rejection to complete acceptance. And it's important that we recognize based on people's, not only their, their geographic location, but their cultural values and mores, how do they feel about gender nonconforming uh, people and how do gender nonconforming people feel about themselves even a similar proportion of transsexual transgender or gender nonconforming people existed all over the world it's likely that cultural differences would alter both the behavioral expressions of different gender identities and the extent to which gender dysphoria actually occurs if you had gender um, nonconforming people in the Eastern Hemisphere versus the Western Hemisphere. Let's not even call out any country specifically. Cultural differences are going to affect people's level of gender dysphoria. And as we go through the causes of gender dysphoria, you'll start to understand why. Terminology is culturally and time-dependent and rapidly evolving. It is important to use respectful language in different places at and times among different people. If you don't know the correct word to use, ask. If you use an incorrect word and you get corrected, don't take it personally. Just recognize that and add that to your database, that the term has changed or the term in this area or for this person is different. Gender nonconformity is the extent to which a person's gender identity, role, or expression differs from the cultural norms prescribed for people of a particular sex. Gender dysphoria, however, refers to the distress caused by a discrepancy between their gender identity and their assigned sex at birth and discrimination and other things that happen because of that. Only some gender nonconforming people experience gender dysphoria at some point in their lives. Not everybody has a problem with it. Some people are gender nonconforming from the time they're two or younger, and they don't experience the gender dysphoria. They're raised in a family that is accepting and supportive and embracing and all those wonderful things. They're in a culture that is not discriminating at at the very least. So they may not experience the dysphoria that someone who is in a different place or growing up in a different family might experience. Treatment for gender dysphoria depends on the individual. A dis and, and we're going to talk about these different treatments. Not everybody wants to go through actual biological changes. Not everybody wants to necessarily even embrace their their gender identity we need to talk with people and empower them to embrace what works and feels right for them 
It's important to remember that a disorder is a description of something with which a person might struggle, not a description of the person or the person's identity. The person's identity as whatever gender or gender nonconforming is a description of who they are. That's not a disorder. They struggle with anxiety related to discrimination. They struggle with depression potentially related to hopelessness and helplessness because of being stigmatized in their culture. Transsexual, transgender, and gender nonconforming individuals are not inherently disordered. The distress of gender dysphoria may precipitate a diagnosable disorder. So from a clinical standpoint, we are not trying to change, and, and it's unethical to do it anyway, we are not trying to change people's gender identity. We are trying to help them with their gender dysphoria. Some individuals describe themselves as not as gender nonconforming, but as unambiguously cross-sexed. There is a wide variety of terminology, and this is why we need to ask. We need to feel confident in asking, because if somebody asks, what would you how do you prefer to be called, uh, referred to, then that can be seen as respectful of that person. How is it that you would like me to address you? People ask me that when they come into my office, but then do you want me to address you as Dr. Snipes, as Dawn? You know, how should I address you? It's just a question of respect. Other individuals affirm their unique gender identity and describe their gender identity in specific terms, such as transgender, bigender, genderqueer, affirming their unique experience that may transcend, and this is important, may transcend a male-female binary understanding. We need to get past this. You're either male or female. There are areas of gray in there. And they may identify with neither, both, or a combination of gender. And certain terms include agender, bigender, trigender, pangender, demigender, fluid, or third, or other gendered. You can't just be, look at somebody and guess. You can't just fit somebody neatly into this if they are gender nonconforming. We do need to ask, how is it that you refer to yourself? And we need to pay attention to this in our assessment documents, because what do our assessment documents make us do? We, they make us choose male or female, you know, your age, when you're doing that demographic sheet. And some people may not be able to identify with that binary structure. They may not feel like they're male or female. We need to have an other category that we can fill in gender identity. And these over here are different flags that represent the different gender identities that people may, um, may hold. Why do I have these, these here? Because one of the things that people who are um, gender nonconforming may look for in your office are signs that you are aware and open to embracing their particular situation. Gender identity is separate from sexual or romantic orientation. And we need to get away from that notion that people who are gender nonconforming, that that is a, a sexual orientation. You may have someone who is biologically male who feels and, and associates more, and I'm going to use binary terms, uh, feels more 
female, and they may also be in a relationship with another female. So just because we can't assume anybody's sexual orientation by their gender identity is what I'm getting at. Some individuals may not experience their process of identity affirmation as a transition because they never fully embraced their birth gender role. This is important. We don't want to pathologize something that's not an issue for them. They may not feel like they need to go through this transition and coming out process. Some do, some don't. And Lisa raises a, a good point that we can ask people, and it is important to ask people who are transgendered, what pronoun would you prefer that I use? What, and, and going along with that, going a step further, having them identify their gender identity instead of just he or she. There may be a different pronoun that they, they prefer to have, to have used. When somebody says that they're transgender, that's great. You know, if they identify as transgender, then you can ask them to tell you about their experiences with being transgender. Don't assume that the reason they're presenting in your office has anything to do with their gender identity. It may, it may not. But let's talk about what that experience has been like for them. There's a stigma attached to gender nonconformity in many societies around the world. Stigma can lead to prejudice and discrimination resulting in minority stress. Minority stress is unique, and they're additive to general stressors. You know, we all have stress. We have stress from, you know, our job. We have stress from our significant others. We have stress from paying the bills. We have stresses. It's just life. Minority stresses are additional stresses that are piled on top of that that come from stigma and discrimination as a result of being in a minority. Minority stress is socially based and chronic and may make transsexual, transgender, and gender nonconforming individuals more vulnerable to developing mental health concerns. According to the National Transgender Discrimination Survey, 90% of transgendered individuals reported experiencing anti-trans bias at work, 90%. And 43% reported having attempted suicide. Just let that sink in for a second. 43% of transgendered individuals reported having attempted suicide. That's devastating. Stigma can can contribute to abuse and neglect, which in turn can lead to psychological distress, which is socially induced and not inherent to being transsexual, transgender, or gender nonconforming. This abuse or neglect can come from school, can come from bullies, can come from work, can come from society, can even come from their own parents and their own family. And it's important to recognize the impact of abuse and neglect. And it may not be physical abuse. Remember, it can be passive verbal abuse it can be withholding emotion it can be there are a lot of forms of abuse and neglect that are a little bit more subtle that are just as devastating structural stigma refers to the societal norms environmental conditions and laws and practices that limit the opportunities and well-being of stigmatized people central to structural stigma is power which is used by the majority to exclude and marginalize those who are different Think about the whole restroom controversy that came up a couple of years ago. The majority the, wanted to say, no, you need to choose between, you know, the two binary restrooms. And 
but the minority was saying the people who are her transgender and not gender non-conforming were saying that doesn't work for us or we should be able to go into the restroom that is most closely aligned with our gender identity for those who are not completely binary labeling transgender people as non-normative legitimizes social norms and bestows the cisgendered majority with power and privilege identifying them as a minority and saying you know you're just the minority so you don't have as much of a voice you don't have as large of a voice so tough tiddlywinks really you know how disempowering is that and how um oppressive is that when we say that instead of saying you know what you are a minority but you are just as valuable as anybody in the majority culture structural stigma operates as a form of symbolic violence in communities institutions or governments in which they perpetrate violence through the laws and policies that restrict or forcibly reshape transgender individuals for example the dsm identified transgender as a mental health disorder until until 2013 until 2013 that was so just the most recent version of the dsm is the first time that we've really started to recognize that being transgender is not a disorder lack of trained healthcare providers specifically due to the curricula of most medical and psychology programs can limit access to care we didn't have any training on transgender or gender non-conforming individuals we didn't even have any training on working with or the needs of the lgbtq population in the program that i went to and it was you know the biggest state universe flagship university so we recognize that there are good schools out there that have some very antiquated curricula as recently as 2000 state level anti-discrimination policies excluded transgender individuals as a protected class again the majority saying you know what you're too little to have a voice so you need to do whatever we say that's not okay as of 2015 transgender people in massachusetts could legally be refused access to public restrooms denied health care and removed from public transportation that's 2015 not you know 1915 that was as, as recently as 2015. There's a lot of interpersonal stigma with people who are transgendered or gender nonconforming. While the ability to pass may help transgender individuals avoid stigma, so people who are biologically male who are gender identified as female and they can pass as a female, um, they may avoid a lot more stigma than people who don't pass. You can look at them and tell, you know, that's that's a male who is biologically male who is trying to identify as a female so if you the people who can pass tend to experience less stigma but concealing a core aspects of oneself can impart a profound stress on individuals who question when their stigma would be discovered and whether they should disclose their stigma to others so if they're passing as a female they're basically living a sort of a double life in some ways and that's really stressful and invalidating in some ways to themselves because they're like okay then when i do let people know that i'm not actually biologically female how are they going to take it when do i let them know transgender 
people with low visual conformity experience more discrimination and worse health outcomes than those with high visual conformity. Transgender individuals who are unable or choose not to access gender affirmation procedures and individuals for whom medical interventions are less effective may be more at risk of experiencing enacted forms of stigma as their non-conforming appearance is visible. Again, not everybody chooses the gender affirmation medical procedures. Prevalence of lifetime physical assault due to gender identity is 33 to 53%. It's theorized that gender nonconformity causes perpetrators to become anxious and angry, enacting violence as a mean of rejecting and diminishing what they fear. So your suicide statistics are in the mid-40s, and your experience of lifetime physical assault is between 33 and 53 percent. This population is really struggling to be safe, not just to feel safe, but to be safe. Violence against transgender people is often perpetrated by someone known to the victim, including family members. It's not just the random person on the street. It's people who are supposed to be their friends and family. Rejection by one's family of origin is common among transgender people, and mistreatment in everyday settings such as healthcare um, are also very common. 28% of people say they've experienced harassment in medical settings, and 19% say they were refused care. In the study, they didn't go into exactly what harassment constituted or what care refusal constituted, but Regardless, if they perceived that they were harassed, what caused that and how can we improve? Oops. Stigmatized individuals' psychological processes are affected by stigma, which shapes their basic orientation to themselves, creating an internal transphobia or self-hatred. <clears throat> and it also shapes their orientation to others and their environment. Can I trust anybody? Am I safe in my environment? When they experience stigma and discrimination, then the answer to both of those things becomes no. A 2014 study of college students who were LGBTQ had participants listen to a presentation on positive LGBTQ identities and write narratives related to their own positive identity experiences. Post-intervention, participants showed an increase in positive LGBTQ identity and self-esteem, but the results weren't maintained. So they hear something that's really positive and really affirming, and they write a narrative that's positive and affirming, and they feel great. And then they go out into the world, and they experience stigma and discrimination and just smacks them, you know, in the face again, and those positive effects are diminished. More intensive interventions have been conducted in non-transgender sexual minority populations with sustained results. A one-and-done is not going to work for this population because the level of oppression and discrimination that they experience is so pervasive. We need to make sure that these interventions are intensive and ongoing. Prevalence for transsexualism was 4.6 in 100,000 individuals, 6.8 for trans women, and 2.6 for trans men. It doesn't sound like a lot. But when you think of how many people there are out there, and when you also recognize that this, these statistics are taken from the people who have presented in some kind of clinic for some kind of assistance, 
and and they have been identified as transgendered people who are transgender or, or gender non-conforming who hide it from their medical providers who don't seek out treatment in any sort of way they're not being counted and there is a significant proportion of people out there that fit that category Time analysis found an increase in reported prevalence of transgender and gender nonconformity in the last 50 years. Gender nonconformity among female to male individuals tends to be relatively invisible in many cultures, particularly to Western health professionals. When we say relatively invisible, Western health professionals are less concerned about it and it doesn't really raise any, any flags for them. And a lot of the female to male transitions unless it's over biological transitions doctors often just don't even really notice hormone therapy and surgery have been found to be medically necessary to alleviate gender dysphoria in many but not all people so there's there are a lot of people out there who are who choose not to engage in hormone therapy or surgery some individuals integrate their trans or cross-gender feelings into the gender role they were assigned at birth and do not feel the need to feminize or masculinize their body. Cool. Which is something that we need to understand as clinicians. Do they want to engage in some of these physical changing procedures? Or do they want to... Do they need help integrating their feelings into the gender role they were assigned at birth? Two very different treatment plans there. Both very, you know, common to see in counseling, but two very different treatment plans. For other people, changes in their gender role and expression are, are sufficient. They don't even feel the need to necessarily integrate it. Gender-affirming medical therapy and supported social transition in childhood have been shown to correlate with improved psychological functioning for gender-variant children and adolescents, suggesting that psychopathology is not inevitable with this group. If they grow up in an affirming, supportive environment, likelihood of gender dysphoria and later mental health problems, it, it, it may not happen. Socially transitioned gender Transgender children have notably lower rates of internalizing psychopathology than previously reported among children with gender identity living as their natal sex, which means that children who are gender nonconforming or transgender who are forced to live as their birth sex tend to have worse psychological outcomes than those who are allowed to embrace their gender identity. Goals of psychotherapy, help people explore their gender identity, their role, and how they choose to express it. We want to help reduce child and adolescent distress related to their gender dysphoria. Treatment aimed at trying to change a person's gender identity and expression to become more congruent with their sex assigned at birth is considered highly unethical as well as ineffective. We don't do that. We want to help them identify and embrace the gender identity that is comfortable for them. We need to address the negative impact of gender dysphoria and stigma on their mental health. Help them see the connection between stigma, discrimination, and how they feel, and help them identify what do they need to what do they need from their family, their friends, their community in order to feel validated, supported. And all that stuff we need to help them alleviate internalized transphobia 
They may have grown up hearing negative messages about transgender or gender non-conforming people and internalize that as there's something wrong with me or I won't be accepted if people really knew who I was. We want to help alleviate that internalized transphobia. We want to help them enhance their social and peer support. We want to explore and anticipate the implications in gender role and pace the process of implementing these changes. Now, the person is going to be the one who ultimately sets the pace of what's going on. But every change they make is going to have some implications. And generally, it's ill-advised to go from, um, you know, completely representing your biological assign biologically assigned gender to switching gears and going in the complete um to embrace a completely different gender identity overnight generally it's advised to slowly make that process maybe um come out to family and maybe be embracing your gender identity at home or on vacation or or wherever at first getting used to it and how people react to you and how you feel interacting with people with this new gender identity and then gradually coming out we want to help people improve their body image and we'll talk about this in a little bit but especially for people with gender dysphoria who are are younger children with gender dysphoria as they hit puberty and their body starts to develop those secondary sex characteristics their gender dysphoria may go through the roof because they are experiencing um, even more disconnect between their body and what, what they feel they are we want to promote resilience and this is true with everybody not just people who are gender non-conforming or transgender we want to ameliorate psychosocial difficulties facilitate a coming out process if appropriate now remember not all people feel they need to come out because they never fully embraced their birth gender from the from the beginning for youth pursuing sex reassignment, supporting them before, during, and after reassignment, supporting them in their decision, talking about the challenges that they're going to face during this process, um, during the reassignment process, you know, there's pain, there's hormone changes, there's lots of stuff, and then after reassignment, helping them embrace their new self, if you will. The categories. There are fully reversible interventions. These interventions involve the use of uh, growth hormone analogs to suppress estrogen or testosterone production and delay the physical changes of puberty. So in children, this is something that can be done and it's fully reversible. You quit taking the medication and the sex characteristics start to develop. Partially reversible uh, interventions include hormone therapy to masculinize or feminize the body. Some hormone-induced changes may need reconstructive surgery to reverse the effect, such as boys who take estrogens may develop some breast tissue, which isn't just going to go away when they stop taking the estrogen, so they may need to have breast reduction surgery. While other changes are not reversible at all, such as deepening of voice caused by testosterone. The doctors will explain this to the child and to the family, but it is really important that the adolescent and the family go into it with their eyes wide open about what is reversible and what isn't 
Moving from one stage to another shouldn't occur until there's adequate time for the adolescent and family to fully experience the effects of earlier interventions. Assessments are required for hormone or surgical procedures, but psychotherapy usually is not. We don't want to force somebody into psychotherapy and pathologize something that may not be a diagnosable disorder. We don't want to pathologize something that's not a disorder. Clinicians should be knowledgeable about current community advocacy and public policy issues relevant to these clients and their families. We also need to know about sexuality, sexual health concerns, and the assessment and treatment of sexual disorders. Professionals should give ample room for clients to explore different options for gender expression. How I express my gender is very different than how other people express their gender. What, how is it that your particular client wants to make that decision? Families should be supported in managing uncertainty and anxiety about their child or adolescent psychosexual outcomes and in helping youth to develop a positive self-concept. And I see in the chat room, um, and we're going to talk, I'm going to address some of this at the, end of, at the end of the discussion, but this is a big decision. And children cannot make this decision on their own. They have to have the support of their family. And families generally with the consult, consult of other medical professionals will choose one avenue or the other, or there are actually multiple avenues. They can choose not to do it and say, you know what, you got to wait till you're older, or they can choose to allow it either partially with the reversible interventions, partially with the semi-reversible interventions, or they may be all on board with the full uh, transition. And that's going to be dependent on each individual and each situation. Non-psychotherapeutic interventions that can be helpful and we need to know about these because they can be resources we can put out there. Peer support resources, groups, or community organizations that provide avenues for social support and advocacy. There was even one Wikipedia page that was, had a list of people with non-binary gender identities. Sometimes this helps people feel not as isolated, not as much of a minority. They can see people who are famous and go, oh, I didn't know or I should have known, or, you know, I knew that person, I just didn't think about them, and feel a sense of um, connection with that. We want to make sure we know about support resources for families and friends of people who are going through a gender transition, because it's difficult. Even if you support what the child or the adolescent is doing, families, uh, parents, worry about the discrimination and the stigma the youth may face. Um, friends may not exactly know, they want to be supportive, but they may not exactly know how to do it. So these support resources are really important to help provide the person's support system the resources they need to be able to be helpful and supportive. Voice and communication therapy help individuals develop verbal and nonverbal communication skills that facilitate comfort with their gender identity. Hair removal through electrolysis, laser treatment, or waxing can be helpful for helping somebody embrace their gender identity. Breast or hip binding or padding 
genital tucking and penile prosthesis are also things that can be considered. Now, these things are obviously going to be more discussed with a medical provider. But knowing that these options are out there, we can say, you know, there are options for you. Why don't you talk to your, to your doctor, to the endocrinologist, whomever. Hormone therapy, in order to either suppress certain hormones or augment them, is available generally through an endocrinologist that specializes in this. And changes in name and gender on identity documents can be very affirming for the person who embraces a different gender than their, than their birth gender. Due to relatively low persistence of rates of childhood gender dysphoria, change back to the original gender role can be highly distressing and even result in postponement of the second social transition. Parents may present this role as role change as an exploration of living in another gender role rather than an irreversible situation and explicitly let the child know there's a way back. You think you want to do this right now? Okay, I'm going to support you, but we're going to choose avenues that are reversible so there is a way back. If you decide that this is not working for you, if this is not who, you, what you thought it was going to be, you know, whatever, there is a way back. Professionals can assist parents in identifying potential in-between solutions or compromises, such as <clears throat> embracing and supporting the child or adolescent in expressing their gender identity <clears throat> only when they're on vacation or on the weekends at home, as opposed to at school where they may be at higher risk for bullying and it could make it more difficult to, to um, deal with the transition. That's going to be, again, dependent on each individual family, each individual child, based on their situation, their location, how much support they have, all that stuff. A central component of many family support groups is education about the transgender experience, which allows non-transgendered participants to develop a humanizing perspective of their transgender family member and no, long them, no longer see them as an other or a minority. They're one of our family, and let's talk about this person's experience of being born into a body that they don't feel comfortable in. If parents don't allow their ch young child to make a gender role transition, then they may need counseling to assist them with meeting their child's needs in a sensitive and nurturing way because the child may feel oppressed, um, ensuring that the child has ample possibilities to explore gender feelings and behavior in a safe environment. If parents do allow their young child to make a gender role transition, they may need counseling to facilitate a positive experience for their child in school, peer group settings, and when communicating with other people in the child's life. As parents, knowing how to tell grandma and grandpa what they're, how they're supposed to respond and what pronouns they're supposed to use and... Um, indoctrinating them to the transgender experience so they're aware of what this adolescent is going through is going to be really important. For many people, um, their gender identity, they feel it and or gender nonconformity, they feel not connected to their uh, birth assigned gender from early on, from childhood. So it's not a hiccup in the identity crisis phase of development. Um, it can be 
it may not come out until then, but for a lot of people, they know or they have feelings long before that stage of psychosocial development that tell them that they don't feel comfortable in their own body for some reason. Transgender youth have a higher risk of reporting psychological distress, self-harm, major depressive episodes, suicidal ideation, and suicide attempts. Risk ratios range from 3.8 to 16.1. Transgendered boys and men and non-binary youth were most likely to report self-harm. And non-binary youth, remember that means youth who don't feel like they're fully male or fully, fully female, also reported lower overall mental health. We don't have the words right now to really express, and a lot of people have difficulty understanding and wrapping their heads around a non-binary concept of gender. The prevalence of substance use was 2.5 to 4 times higher for transgendered youth compared with their non-transgendered peers, and a history of transphobic assault, homelessness, underhousing, and sex work were associated with greater drug use among transgender persons. Only 6 to 27% of adults who experience gender dysphoria present in prepubital childhood continue to experience it in adulthood. 20, uh, 6 to 27%. So if somebody experienced gender dysphoria as a child, chances are 75% or more of them, that gender dysphoria will go away in adulthood. They will figure out how to embrace their gender identity uh, in adulthood. That's great to know. Does it mean that we just ignore gender dysphoria in, in children? Heck no. Because for a lot of reasons. Number one, up until 25, that impulse control area of the brain is not fully developed. When children are younger, adolescents, they've got hormones surging all over the place. They tend to be more impulsive. There is a much greater risk for bullying and all kinds of things in childhood and adolescence. So it's really important in order to prevent suicidal ideation and other things to address gender dysphoria and help the child or adolescent become comfortable in their own skin and embrace their gender identity as they define it um, in order to prevent the development of gender dysphoria and other problems. That doesn't necessarily mean the parents permitting the gender transition. However, again, it's important, it is vital that the youth is allowed to experience their gender-related feelings and thoughts and express them and come to some sort of understanding and feel comfortable for who they are. For those with continued dysphoria, the development of secondary sex characteristics can intensify feelings and lead to body aversion. The numbers are much higher if gender dysphoria was experienced during adolescence. The, the number of people who continue to experience gender dysphoria in later life and the intensity of the gender dysphoria may be much higher if the gender dysphoria started during adolescence when there was, you know, all, when there were all these uh, bodily changes. Some children, but not others, demonstrate extremely gender nonconforming behavior and wishes accompanied by persistent and severe discomfort with their primary sex characteristics from a very, very young age. 
It is relatively common for children with gender dysphoria to present with co-occurring mood disorders or oppositional defiant disorder. Well, let's think about why that is. Anxiety is related to, in a lot of children, is related to social acceptance and, you know, not feeling comfortable and not feeling safe. Depression is related to hopelessness and helplessness. If your family and your environment is trying to pigeonhole you into your sex assigned at birth and all of the roles that go with that, then the child may feel very unheard and very unsupported, which can come out as a mood disorder or oppositional defiant where they just get tired of it and they're like, you know what? You don't care about me. I don't care about you. Screw this. Which is oversimplification, but you can kind of see how children with gender dysphoria could easily develop mood-related disorders due to stigma, discrimination, and just plain unknowing insensitivity. Many adolescents and young adults presenting with gender dysphoria do not report a history of childhood gender nonconforming behaviors. So again, it, for a lot of people, it presents in childhood, but not for everybody. Assessment and psychosocial interventions for children and adolescents are often provided within a multidisciplinary gender identity specialty service because there are so many nuances to what goes on when people start undergoing um, gender-affirming changes that it is a specialty. It's not something that, you know, most of us that are in here probably have the specific skills and tools to deal with. However, if we have a client who happens to be struggling with some of these issues, seek supervision, seek consultation. You can still continue to see that person, but it's important to make sure that you're getting some expert input on some of the challenges that the person may be facing at this stage of their transition and the next stage of their transition. If a multidisciplinary service isn't available, it's important to involve a pediatric endocrinologist for the purpose of assessment, education, and any involvement in any decisions about physical interventions. Clinicians should acknowledge the presenting concerns of children, adolescents, and their families, offer a thorough assessment for gender dysphoria and any coexisting mental health concerns, and educate clients and their families about therapeutic options. So when I say clinicians, I mean us, the mental health social work clinicians. Assessment needs to explore uh, the nature and characteristics of a child or adolescent's gender identity, their gender dysphoria, the history and the development of the dysphoric feelings. Is it something that just like suddenly came up or was there a triggering event or have there been signs for years? What's going on? And, you know, how has that brought you here today? The impact of stigma attached to gender nonconformity on mental health. Maybe they're presenting for depression because they're being bullied in school for their gender nonconformity. The availability of support from family, friends, and peers. You know, we need to know what this youth is dealing with and where their support system lies, if any. And sometimes they don't have any, and we need to make sure that we can connect them with support systems. Assessment should explore emotional functioning, peer and other relationships, intellectual functioning, and school. You know, your typical assessment. Strengths and weaknesses of family functioning and unsolved issues in a child or youth's environment that they may need 
to deal with. If it's determined that the child is going or adolescent is going to take on gender affirming therapies and hormone therapy, the adolescent has, has to have demonstrated a long lasting and intense pattern of gender nonconformity or gender dysphoria, whether suppressed or expressed. It doesn't mean the person has to have been dressing as the opposite gender or necessarily expressing their dysphoria. They may have suppressed it and felt miserable, but they didn't, you know, try to commit suicide or anything like that. Gender dysphoria emerged or worsened with the onset of puberty. So this is another sign. And any coexisting psychological, medical, or social problems that could interfere with treatment have been addressed so the adolescent is stable enough to start treatment. We don't want treatment to be a reaction to something that's going on in their environment. And we need to make sure that their environment is going to be supportive because these are huge changes they're getting ready to undertake. The adolescent needs to have given informed consent. If the adolescent has not reached the age of medical consent, the guardians must have consented to the treatment and must be involved in supporting the adolescent throughout the treatment process. If you're writing the letter for hormone therapy, then you need to identify the client's general identifying characteristics, the result of their psychosocial assessment, including any mental health diagnoses, duration of the referring health professional's relationship with the client, including the type of evaluation and therapy or counseling to date. Now, remember, these gender-affirming processes don't necessarily require therapy. They just, they all require an assessment and a letter. So you may not have known the client for more than 90 minutes. You also need to include an explanation that the criteria for hormone therapy have been met and a brief description of the clinical rationale for supporting the client's request for hormone therapy. And they go into the criteria for hormone therapy in the document. You need an informed consent and the avail availability for coordination of care. Should the adolescent need therapy, need counseling to deal with the changes that are being experienced, then it's important that that's already set up before the, the adolescent goes in and starts undergoing the procedures. Physical effects of hormone therapy, just kind of so you're aware. In female to male pa patients, you have a deepened voice, sometimes clitoral enlargement, the growth of facial and body hair, cessation of their menses, atrophy of breast tissue, an increased libido, and a decreased percentage of body fat compared to mu muscle mass. In male to female patients, you will see more or less breast growth, decreased libido and erections, a decrease in testicular size, and an increase in percentage of body fat compared to muscle mass. None of those should be very surprising changes. A lot of people who are gender nonconforming do experience barriers to care, though. The majority of respondents to the National Transgender Discrimination Survey were 33% more likely than the general sample to report foregoing health care due to fear of discrimination than the general sample. Inexperienced clinicians, including mental health clinicians, may mistake indications of gender dysphoria for delusions. It's important to really accept the notion, embrace the notion that not everybody feels or identifies with the gender that they were assigned at birth. 
Studies demonstrate improvements in attitudes towards transgender individuals among healthcare professionals after education, suggesting that familiarity with the terminology might help overcome negative preconceptions. People who enter an institution on an appropriate regimen of hormone therapy should be continued on the same or similar therapies and monitored, whether it's residential treatment or jail or long-term hospitalization for some reason. A freeze-frame approach where they're taking a certain dose of hormones and then they're in um, institutionalized for six months, they can't get it, and then they pick it up again when they get out. It's called a freeze-frame approach, and that's not considered appropriate care in most situations. We may need to advocate for our clients if they do become institutionalized. Housing and shower bathroom facilities for transsexual, transgender, and gender nonconforming people living in institutions should take into account their gender identity and role, their physical status, their dignity, and their personal safety. Placement in a single-sex housing unit ward or pod on the sole basis of appearance of the external genitalia may not be appropriate and may place the individual at risk for victimization. You can argue the opposite as well. So it's important that people who are transgender or gender nonconforming are assessed for where they would be the safest. Transsexual, transgender, and gender nonconforming people are still inundated with stigma and discrimination. Thankfully, because of a lot of media coverage, it's becoming less stigmatizing, but it's still there, and it's going to continue to still be there for a while, unfortunately. Being transsexual, transgender, or gender nonconforming is not a pathology or a diagnosis. The diagnostic issues arise from the distress and internal transphobia, which may develop from a society that embraces a binary notion of sexuality. Effective treatment requires us clinicians to address the client's distress triggers and assist them in integrating all parts of themselves hormone treatments for some may begin as early as nine years old to suppress secondary sex characteristics some treatments if we as we've discussed are permanent while others are reversible essential to the well-being of the client is assisting family as defined by the client, it may not be their biological relatives, in understanding transgender experiences and helping them to provide that person with support. To reiterate, treatment involves addressing the distress caused by gender dysphoria and the overt and covert stigma and discrimination experienced by the individual. Clinicians should assist the client in anticipating and developing skills to deal with stigma and discrimination we can't make it go away, so we need to provide them the resources to be able to deal with it. Deciding on the course and timing for embracing their gender identity, which is going to look different for every single person, and accessing resources for medical treatment and social support in the community as needed. Alrighty, there are a few questions over here in the chat room. Um, and there are a lot of debates that come up about people who are gender nonconforming or transgender playing on different sports teams. And that's one that's still out there in the NCAA for, for debate. And it's a pretty hot button topic regarding letting children make the decision to undergo gender affirming procedures as young as nine years old. That is a decision that the parents, the child, the medical provider and the clinician need to all 
kind of kind of talk about and obviously there are certain circumstances where that would be appropriate um, remembering that a lot of the changes that children are allowed to embrace or go through are not permanent they are either temporary or semi-permanent which means that they do have more ability to go back should when they're at the age of being able to give their own medical consent should they decide that they don't want to pursue it any further so it's not necessarily a permanent change and looking as, as one of you points out looking how you how we as a society present gender roles and we do present it pretty binary um, embracing a, a less binary concept of gender roles may be very helpful to reducing gender dysphoria depending and, and renee depending on the individual you know some people will embrace and some people may have already embraced a change in their dress as the first step um, obviously that's one of the um, least dramatic changes if you will um, in in some cases and then you know maybe foregoing or starting to wear makeup could be the next step or they may do that all at once um, before they start taking hormones which would be maybe the next step in the process talking with the family and the individual about how they envision their gender role and their gender identity and talking about you know what do you see as the first step to embracing this it's going to be a multi-step process what's the first thing that you think you need to do in order to start feeling more comfortable and more empowered to be who you are alrighty everybody um, you know I know this really went over a lot of data and it wasn't as um, activity centric as a lot of our presentations are but I really feel like it was an important topic to really hit the highlights on to just educate us all I know I learned a lot doing the presentation about the experience of people who are transgender or gender non-conforming and what we need to do and what we need to be aware of in order to provide culturally and ethically responsive treatment so everybody have an awesome day and I will see you on Thursday to talk about common mistakes that we make and common issues that we face when we see couples if this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode a direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs that's allceus.com slash podcast CEUs to sponsor an episode of Counselor Toolbox and reach over 50,000 clinicians per week, go to allceus.com slash sponsor. Thank you.